A really key member of the suffragette movement, Margaret Garrod. She was martial arts trained. Hello and welcome to the M Gallery Bedroom Book Club, an exciting new series presented by myself, Ben Solgana, and me, Ben Keane, co-founders of Rebel Book Club, inspired by and in partnership with M Gallery Hotel Collection. And you can still see photos of her demonstrating jujitsu throws and chokeholds on a reporter at the age of 80 or 100. She's still got it. M Gallery is a collection of storied boutique hotels to discover the world and beyond. M Gallery selects properties with passion to gather them into a unique collection of hotels where captivating stories are lived and shared. Each M Gallery tells a story inspired by the location. A story that stays. Inspired by the hotel's stories, we've teamed up with some of the UK's most forward-thinking non-fiction authors to bring you a special one-off conversation on their book and how it connects to the hotel's story. We've even designed a story-inspired cocktail, which can be ordered when you stay at the hotel and comes with a complimentary copy of the book. Over the last few months of lockdown, we've seen a growing number of avid readers join our digital meets at Rebel Book Club. Now, with lockdown lifting and the UK becoming a safe place to travel again, people are eager to visit hotels located in UK beauty spots. The next chapter of the Bedroom Book Club begins at the Queen's Hotel in Cheltenham, and its rebellious royal leader. Queen Victoria was an influential, strong-minded and rebellious female leader that has never been forgotten. The same year as her coronation, the Queen's Hotel Cheltenham was opened and suitably named in her honour. To this day, features across the hotel link back to her from a crafted scent through to its original Victorian features, which have been preserved and revitalised with modern compass and technologies. With this in mind, we found the perfect book for this episode of the Bedroom Book Club, Forgotten Women, The Leaders, by Zing Seng. It brings a contemporary understanding whilst looking back at some amazing female leaders from the past. Today's author Zing is the executive editor of Vice UK and the author of the Forgotten Women book series. She specialises in women's and LGBTQ rights, politics, culture and all things lifestyle. Zing, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Next, we'll be getting to know Zing as a writer, activist and leader and how her journey and work relates to the Queen's Hotel. You can hear the episode and more at bedroombook.club and when you stay at the Queen's Hotel in Cheltenham, be sure to order the story-inspired cocktail to receive your complimentary copy of Zing's book. Happy listening and discovering new stories that stay. Zing, welcome back from Ibiza. Sounds like you've had quite the trip. Would love to know what you've been up to and actually everything in the years that came before, how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Because it's a really cool mix of stuff you've got going on. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I feel very, very privileged to do the kind of wild mix of journalism and reporting and writing and presenting that I do right now. I was just in Ibiza reporting for Vice News on whether or not the nightlife industry can survive coronavirus. And yeah, it's part of my broad mix of skills as a journalist and as a presenter. So I started out in fashion as just a pretty straightforward journalist going to Fashion Week, writing news stories about, you know, designers and fashion models and stuff like that. I did that at Wonderland Magazine and at Dazed and Confused. And then I quickly branched out into doing more things about women's rights coverage and LGBTQ issues. I started broadly in the UK, which was then Vice's flagship feminist vertical. And then from there, have done a real mix of things. So I present documentaries and news reports for Vice. I present a podcast called United Zingdom for BBC Sounds. 
I present the Women's Prize Book Club, which if you're into books, you should definitely check out. We talk to a whole bunch of really interesting female authors on there and doing things like this, which is really nice because it means I get to talk about my own book series, Forgotten Women. And yeah, it's been it's been a very, very interesting few years. I feel, like I said, really honored to be able to do the wild mix of things that I've done. Everything from, you know, reporting on Ibiza nightlife to telling the stories of forgotten female leaders to just being able to kind of put my point of view across as someone who is Singaporean British and came over here when she was a teenager. So I kind of feel like I've done a bit of everything, really. I'm a jack of all trades, if that makes sense. It does. And awesome. We're in the right place to talk books. So thank you so much for being with us. Kind of moving on then, what does what your day look like at the moment? Do you even have a nine to five? And how have you kind of adapted to, to work and life in 2020 so far, given that it's been a bit of a, a wild ride? My day now that I'm in lockdown is very monotonous. I basically wake up, answer a ton of emails. I also edit and commission stories in my role as executive editor of Vice UK. And that can be anything from, you know, latest TikTok trends to Gen Z politics to uh, stories about, you know, housing in the UK and the housing and rental crisis post-coronavirus. So I do a lot of editing and laptop work. Occasionally, I'll also go out into the field like I did with Ibiza to report on camera And then I'll also be recording podcasts like the Women's Prize podcast in the evening or something like this. So it's a real kind of mix of audio, visual and written word, which I think kind of keeps me on my feet. I'm very, very easily bored. So anything that introduces a little bit of variety in my life, especially during lockdown, is very much welcome. Awesome. And as we've mentioned, M Gallery is all about stories that stay. Do you have a travel story or a place or anything that stuck with you and why? So I went back in the days when we were still allowed to travel to Colombia about two years ago, one and a half years ago. And I've always really been interested in Colombia because like very, very many people, I got a kind of very heavily explicit, probably highly dramatized introduction into a country's history with Narcos and Netflix drama. By the way, Colombians hate Narcos. Whereas I (laughs) discovered in Colombia, they have very strong feelings about the way that show portrayed a very turbulent period in their country's history. So I went to Colombia via a really interesting route, which is from Panama to Colombia, sailing through the San Blas Islands. And the San Blas Islands are basically a chain of absolutely gorgeous, quite untouched remote islands. There's no land route through Colombia via Panama, unless you want to go through a really dangerous part of the continent known as Darien Gap. So sailing is the way you kind of travel to Colombia from Panama. You pay 500 US dollars to go onto a converted fishing boat with a bunch of basically backpackers and gap year travelers, and they sail you through these islands. And it can be quite treacherous. We went through a storm. And at that point, I genuinely did think we were about to sink because you crested the top of these waves and the tiny fishing boat would just drop what felt like several stories back onto the surface of the sea. But once you kind of make it through this passage, you end up in these completely tranquil waters full of coral, full of fish. They are the clearest waters I've ever seen in my life. And I've been to the Great Barrier Reef and I've snorkeled there and everything. Uh, The water is so warm, it feels like you're taking a bath in it. And the islands are completely untouched, barring a couple of small shacks where they sell booze and drinks to passers-by The entire place has been kind of saved from development because it's the property of the indigenous locals 
who still live and fish around the area. And you'll see them on these long wooden boats that they've carved out, paddling by hand in open water. It's quite a sight. And it was just paradise. I've never been anywhere like it. And it's also, I think, great because not very many people go. So you, because the passage is still quite remote, you basically only get hardcore people and people who um, are happy to spend two days sleeping rough on the sea. So that's really, really stuck with me. And the fact as well that if you went to these islands, you can still see plastic rubbish. That was also something that I found really interesting. So on one of the islands we went to, no development, nothing, just sandy beaches for miles. It had a abandoned refrigerator still there. And I was like, God, that is a really sad indictment of how bad pollution is in the world if a refrigerator with the brand name still attached um, can somehow float its way to the Sandblast Islands. But if anybody has the opportunity out of their travel time to take five days out to sail through these islands, I highly recommend it. It's one of the best things I've done. Sounds amazing. Oh, I just have a massive, a massive sense of wanderlust, gratefully. I know. That story thing. I mean, yeah. I still think about those islands. And to be honest, they've pretty much ruined me. You know, I go to other beaches and I'm like, mm, yeah, it's not as good as this, though, was it? <laughs> So we're actually both really into islands as well. Ben won't bring it up on this podcast, but he actually crowdfunded an island in Fiji about 10 or so. How long ago was it, Ben? 2006. A little while back. We could back. spend the next hour talking about islands. Ben put himself on an island for 10 days, marooned. Really? Nothing else, just for out of curiosity. This is going to be a spin-off island podcast. And we also actually <laughs> did read a really interesting but sad book, so Turning the Tide on Plastic, which speaks about exactly what you just raised there in terms of the challenges and... But right. keeping things positive, yeah. do you have a favorite reading, writing, or creative retreat zing? Where do you kind of go to find inspiration and unplug? Oh, hmm, that's interesting. I, I'm big into traveling, um, and I always find that I just need to be on the road to get inspiration, which is why I think lockdown has been so hard, especially for a lot of people I know who are also journalists. You know, it feels like you need the constant stimulation of being around people, being in new places for you to start making little observations that might turn into stories or thoughts or, you know, wider ruminations about what you might cover and things that are bubbling up. But the unfortunate byproduct of lockdown is that that kind of variety doesn't really exist anymore, especially if you're not happy to jump on public transport, you don't have your own form of transportation like a car or a bike. You're basically consigned to walking around this one mile radius of your flat or wherever you live. So if I want to get inspiration, I just need to be out on the road. And I really like traveling. I really like meeting new people. I always kind of feel like everyone you meet is sort of a story in the making. And I love hanging out with people, even even people that other people find annoying or difficult. I just always think there's something interesting that people have to say for themselves. So lockdown has kind of hit my inspiration kind of ability to get inspiration quite hard, I think. It's not the same if you're just surfing the web and encountering people online. I always like meeting people in person and speaking to them face to face. But in terms of places I go to to actually knuckle down and concentrate and work, I wrote the entire Forgotten Women series in the British Library reading room, a very specific reading room which was Social Sciences 1. I don't know if people have ever been to it. It's a lovely room. It's incredibly quiet and it's full of professors. So you feel very, very guilty if you start procrastinating by surfing the internet or something. And that British library room basically saved the books. I don't think I would have been able to concentrate enough to write the books otherwise. It's so silent and it's so airy. It's 
two stories high, there's a mezzanine floor and you kind of scope it out and you get in there on the ground floor at 10 a.m. and you get your seat and that's it. That's you done for the rest of the day. So that's where I concentrate best. Good tip. Yeah. I'm just getting lost in these travel stories. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so let's zoom in on the book now, Zing, and, and tell us why you wrote Forgotten Women. What was the starting point? So I'd always been the kind of person who collects stories and collects pub trivia. If you ever need to win a pub quiz based on just random trivia, I am that person. I'm useless at sports and you know all that kind of stuff. But if it comes to random facts, I'm the kind of person who's very, very annoying to watch University Challenge with. And I'd been collecting these kind of stories of these various women as a kind of like, hey, you know, things to tell my friends about down the pub. And like, oh, hey, did you know about this thing? Did you know about that thing? And it wasn't really until I met with the editor on this project, Romley Morgan, and she said, well, do you have any ideas for books? We're really interested in your voice as a writer. And I said, oh, you know, have you heard about this person or this person, this person? And then eventually it was her that said, we're thinking of collecting stories like this into a series. Would you be interested in writing about it? Because you seem to have these all kind of tucked away in the back of your head anyway. So I said yes, because I thought it was an amazing opportunity to be able to actually properly spend time with these women's lives and properly dive into the research for it. And that was where it all kind of unfolded from there. And we all along knew it was going to be a multi-volume book. And we were just kind of finding women who slotted into these books. And we wanted it to be as kind of representative and diverse across times, nationalities, geographies, as much as possible within the limits of what we were able to find out. Because I would have loved for this book to have even more stories from Asia and South America and Africa. But with my limited ability to read in different languages, that was sadly a real kind of stumbling block. So a lot of it was based around what had kind of floated up in Western academia and Western literature. So that's like one thing that I wish we could have spent more time with. But I'm still really happy with the length and the breadth of the women's histories, which we were able to cover. Oh, I think you should be. And you, you talk about in the introduction of which women and which stories to leave out. So what did your shortlist look like? I mean, we, we just have to pick three books a month for our members to vote from. But how did you whittle it down and make those decisions? I've actually got a quote here, Zing. I pulled this out because it, it stuck with me. And you said, selecting women to go into the book presented an exquisite, if deeply pleasurable, nightmare. Yeah, so it was a nightmare. And it was a nightmare manifest in an Excel spreadsheet, which we went over, over and over again, trying to be like, no, we should have her. We should definitely have her. No, maybe we could lose her. Oh, but I feel really bad about losing her. It was really, really difficult. Um, so it was between me, my editor, and someone who's actually in the acknowledgements, the new historia. So Gina Luria Walker, who's a professor of women's studies at the New School in New York City, she curates the academic counterpart to this book, which is called thenewhistoria.com. So it's kind of like an academic exploration of like more women who should be on the syllabus for women's studies and so we were working with her and basically being like Gina we need help you know we we really want to find someone from you know this particular point in history do you know of anybody and she would feed in and then she would look over the list and say oh have you considered putting this person in so it was kind of like a three-person effort and I think by the end of it we kind of felt like we'd done our absolute best to try and present this really interesting list of women where each one told a different story about the world and had a different kind of angle and element to interest the reader. But, you know, it was, it was 
it was kind of a nightmare. Yeah, it was difficult to feel like you're the person in charge of adjudicating history. You know, I'd love to know if male historians feel this way or people who are men who write history, because I felt this real responsibility to get it right and to also represent in a way that maybe a lot of male historians and male history writers don't, and to kind of make it pleasurable for the reader to read and discover these histories. Yeah, because you are shaping future biases or undoing biases, right? So, one of the things that struck me um, reading it was that. Uh, and you talk about the the thing that helped you make the decision was like, would my 12-year-old curious self be into these stories? And for me, reading stories of Rebel Girls, the Rebel Girls, that series, which I think is fantastic in terms of where it's bringing these stories to life for, for children. But it doesn't matter how many versions of the books, it's the same like 50 women that end up in these stories. And so I'm thinking, oh, I can't wait till Forgotten Women gets retold for even younger, a younger generation. So maybe that's another series spin-off. But for people who are picking up a copy of Forgotten Women for the first time in the Queen's Hotel or, or even online, what, what can they expect? What's the format of the book and how does it roll out? So the book series consists of four books. Each book has 48 amazing women, all from that particular industry or discipline that the book discusses. So Forgotten Women, the leaders, is broadly about politics and activism, there's Forgotten Women, the scientists, Forgotten Women, the artists, and Forgotten Women, the writers. Those titles are kind of self-explanatory. The Leaders is probably the broadest one because it has everything from activists to revolutionaries to queens, empresses, rebels. It's a much wider breadth. And I think that's because for me, leadership is not just confined to whether or not you're the leader of a country, because if that were the case, then women would literally have only existed in leadership for like the last 50 odd years, really. So I really wanted this book to tell a story of how women were involved in shaping modern history, not just as heads of state, but also as activists, as warriors, as rebels. You know, women have kind of existed in places and positions of power for centuries. But I think it's only really recently, and you see this when Hillary Clinton was running to be US president, it's only really recently we've been able to conceive of women as heads of state and really, really key political powers and positions. Whereas the book tries and shows that, you know, that's not the case. Women have been in these positions for centuries. And in many cases, they were forgotten or excluded or deliberately erased from history. And it's kind of my attempt at showing that the way that we think of women in power doesn't just have to be in positions like, you know, Sheryl Sandberg being you know, that head of Facebook or something, you know, women have been able to wield political power really effectively. And in some cases, quite destructively, but we're not used to thinking about women in that way. So the book is a kind of reevaluation of women in power in that sense. But it's in its most kind of straightforward sense, it's 48 profiles of women's biographies over time. So going from BC before the birth of Christ, all the way up to, I think that the latest stories are from the 80s and 90s, and they're all posthumous portraits of women because it felt a little, it felt, I felt bad saying, you know, this woman's been forgotten when she's still alive, you know. Mm. So I'm, I'm really happy with the 48 women that we picked. They're all illustrated beautifully. So all the books. Yeah, I was series- going to ask you about that because in the back there are illustrations mm-hmm. of the illustrators. So yeah. how did that happen? Because they're really intricate and, and as diverse as the, as the stories themselves. Yeah. So we, approached an organization called Women Who Draw, who are a collective of female illustrators. And we said, we've got 
this project going on, we'd really like to source female illustrators to illustrate all the books. So if you look at all four books in the series, they're all illustrated by the same women and they're from all over the world. And that also felt really important to me because I wanted the people working behind the scenes to illustrate these women's stories to be as diverse as the women whose stories we were telling. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's so good to hear a bit more about what goes into making a book like this, because I think it's easy to say, oh, well, just a bit of Wikipedia work and off we go. We've made our decisions and now we just have to package it up. But it's it's significant, not only the work, but the the values that you and your team have put into this book. So let's dive into some of the stories in, in the leader's book, which is what's available at the Queen's Hotel. Um, there are some queens. And there's some royalty in there. But you've divided um, into these five different categories, rebel, warrior, ruler, activist and reformer. So perhaps we could start with, um, well, go wherever you like, but a woman that stands out for you from this and tell us their story. So I think one of the women whose stories I really like is Edith Margaret Garrett. And I also I should preface this by saying that I don't have favourites. I think that the women... They're like your children. Yeah, they're like my children. And there's like, <laughs> four, well, there's more than 48 of them. There's 48 times You're four of them. Family. I've been very productive. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I don't technically have favorites. But having said that, there are stories where things will happen in the news. And I'll just think, oh, God, you know, that's really interesting. Like that really relates to some this woman that I covered in the book. Um, Or, you know, things will be happening in my personal life or, you know, what's happening at work. And I'll think, oh, this really reminds me of what happened to so and so. And I really hope that's how other people experience the books as well. So they don't really look at it as a kind of me dictating from on high that these are the women you need to know, that they look at these stories and read these stories and think, oh, this particular person's story really resonates with me because I relate to her in this way. And, you know, that's the kind of heartfelt, personal, intimate connections that I think are really important when you read a book and they make books special to people. But one of the people that I really love is... Edith Margaret Garrett. So she was a really key member of the suffragette movement and the suffragette movement celebrated its, I'm going to get this wrong, it's centenary, isn't it? Where it's a hundred years. Yes. Yes. Okay. Got it. Um, so she was really key in the suffragette movement and she was a very unusual figure in that she was martial arts trained and you can actually still see photos of her demonstrating jujitsu throws and chokeholds on like a reporter at the age of 80 or 100. You know, she's still got it. Sadly, she's no longer with us. But basically, she was one of the first female martial arts instructors in the West. She was only four foot 11. So she's really, really tiny. And what she did was she trained a crack team of security guards, all women who had to protect Emmeline Pankhurst, because at the time of the suffragette movement, Things were getting very heated. The suffragettes were not averse to smashing windows, a little bit of property damage to get their way. And, you know, they were routinely beaten up by really angry counter-protesters and men and police. So Edith kind of thought, you know, well, I've got these skills and I'm going to deploy them in the service of the suffragette movement. So she trained this team to protect the key suffragette leaders. And I think that her story is amazing because... There's also the kind of visual element of this tiny woman who grew up in Wales, which is not far from Cheltenham, I think. And she's doing all these kind of martial arts techniques that would not be out of place in a kind of Bruce Lee film. But she's doing it all in kind of Victorian petticoats and beating up men. And I just find the visual image of her so striking. It honestly makes me wonder why there hasn't been a kind of documentary series or film about her, because she's kind of 
brings this modern sensibility to the suffragette movement. And she kind of imbues it with this kind of modern sensibility of like martial arts. And I just love that image of her just kind of going out of her way to crack heads. It's totally fierce. It's, it's brilliant. It brings that story back to life brilliantly. So that's Edith, Margaret Garrard, one of your rebels in Forgotten Women. Who else have you got that's top of the list at the moment? So one of the people I find most interesting in the books is Hatshepsut, who was a female pharaoh. So basically the female king of Egypt. And she's a pharaoh in the sense that she's a true king of Egypt. She wasn't ruling as a regent. So she wasn't ruling instead of her infant son, who was too young to approach the throne. She was ruling in her own right. And that's like a really important distinction to make because there have been queen regents over time, but they're always ruling in place of their child who is eventually going to become king. And Hatshepsut's really interesting because she's known as the great builder of Egypt and she's built these enormous monuments, many of which are still standing today. So you can still see a temple she built in Egypt. It's UNESCO certified. So, you know, it's going to stand there for the test of time. And she kind of came into power because her husband died and she just assumed power. And then she declared herself Pharaoh, which is quite a ballsy move at the time. And she started on this massive construction project, really trying to rebuild Egypt in her image. And it was almost kind of like she knew what was going to happen next in her story. So she eventually died. And after her son resumed power, they started chiseling her out from the permanent record. So, you know, you'll find hieroglyphics where her name has been chiseled out or her name's been entirely replaced to make it seem like the line of succession skipped her. So she was only ruling as a regent instead of a pharaoh in her own right. And I think it's a really interesting example of how women have been trying to make their names known through the centuries. And, you know, you have this pharaoh who's building enormous obelisks with her name on it. And she still has to fight the erasure of her legacy and her name. And, you know, it's only really now that we kind of understand more about Hatshepsut, because for the longest time, a lot of people bought the amended historical record and they thought that she was just a regent who was ruling instead of her son. And they didn't realize that her son had embarked on this grand project to really erase his mother's name. And we'll never really understand the reasons why he did that, because they've been lost in the sands of time and we still haven't uncovered the reasons why he decided to do that several years into his rule. But I think her example is a really interesting example of a female queen, well, a king in her own right, who tried her best to go down in history. And if it wasn't for recently discovered archaeological remnants, we might have just bought the amended and edited history of, her, of who she was and what she was about. So she's one of my favourites because I think she illustrates this very interesting example of the paradox of women gaining power and then posthumously kind of losing recognition for what they've done being erased but and then being rewritten about a long long time later yeah um it's it's again another thing you can see a film script for isn't it? another story it's really really powerful so that's a ruler um who who have you got next so one of the activists that i really love is someone called sylvia riviera who was really instrumental in the stonewall protests and the Stonewall protest started out as a riot in response to police brutality against what was then the kind of underground scene of gay and queer people in New York City. So Sylvia Riviera was this really hard-talking, working-class girl who was Latina, she was transgender, and she literally didn't put up with 
anything. So she kind of spent her entire life advocating for the rights of the trans community, even though it brought her into direct conflict with people you might expect were her allies in the LGBTQ movement. She kind of felt, especially towards the end of her life, that the gay rights movement had forgotten transgender people. And I'm just going to read you what she said in a famous speech that you can still watch on TV to get a sense of who she was as a person. So a year before she died from liver cancer, she harangued this group of gay men who had invited her as their guest of honor to an event. And she basically said, you guys, well, you have acquired your liberation, your freedom from that night. She's talking about the Stonewall riots. Myself, I've got shit, just like I had back then. But still, I struggle. I still continue the struggle. I will struggle till the day I die. And my main struggle right now is that my community will seek the rights that are justly ours. She's just an example of an activist, I think, who was never popular, not even in her own time. You know, people found her too loud, too aggressive, too demanding of her rights, basically, and her rights of her community. And I think it speaks to a kind of activism that I think has fallen out of favor nowadays. So I think nowadays, you know, you'll get activists who say they're activists, but their activism consists of being on social media and posting. And I've got nothing against that, but you have to kind of back this up with real talk and real advocacy. And she did that all her life. She set up homeless shelters for transgender youth who had been kicked out of their homes and sex workers, people who were really on the margins of society who had nowhere else to go. And she really took them in and fed them and housed them. And I think that her unpopularity, especially with the wider gay rights movement, is also really inspiring because she wasn't afraid to call people out, even if you might look at them and say, you know, well, these are your people, these are your allies. But for Sylvia, that wasn't good enough. You know, she wanted people to be on the right side of history and she wasn't afraid to stir shit. So she's one of my favorite activists. And I think especially now with trans rights in the UK coming under attack, I think there are some truly shocking hate crime statistics out there where maybe I think one in six trans people has been attacked at work based on their appearance, based on their identity. I think that her story as an inspiring trans rights activist is really moving. And, you know, it's the kind of story that still continues to be relevant today, sadly, because the trans community is still under attack, even in the UK. Yeah, totally. Story I hadn't heard. It's it's really powerful. So we've had three great stories so far. So let's have a couple more of your choice. Who else have you got there? So, oh, I'd really like to highlight a group of women. So there are groups of women in Forgotten Women, the series is not just individual single profiles. And I think that's because I wanted to highlight that groups of women have always banded together to make lasting change. So one of the groups in Forgotten Women, the scientists are the subject of the biopic Hidden Figures, which Mm. is about the black women at what is now known as NASA, who did the sums that essentially got astronauts into space. And I think something really magical happens when you get a group of women together and they're all focused on a singular aim. Real, real change happens, really meaningful political change. And the group that I want to highlight from the leaders are broadly known as the Radium Girls. So if you don't know what Radium is, it's essentially a really toxic element that was then used in clock faces. So the clock faces would glow in the dark for soldiers for army uses it was very useful at the time but to paint the radium onto these clock faces women in factories would use their lips and 
tiny, tiny paintbrushes. So every time you were painting, you would just ingest a tiny bit of radium. And over time, the radium poisoned them. And literally from the inside out, they started rotting. So they lost their teeth. They lost bits of their jaw. They started glowing ever so slightly with this kind of like toxic luminescent light, which at the time was thought to be quite fun and fashionable and cool. But eventually it was killing them from the inside out. And they were told by their bosses at the factories that this radium was completely safe when it wasn't. And when they started dying by the dozen, they started realizing there's something wrong. So they started bringing US Radium, the company that hired them to court. And they really, really struggled to get heard because they were working class girls working in a factory. People weren't predisposed to caring about them. But they really mounted this sustained campaign to get traction, get press coverage, to take their employers to court because they were literally dying. You know, they, there wasn't any kind of treatment that would save them. And they were kind of like, well, this is the last chance we have to see justice done. So dozens and dozens of girls were being exposed to this. And they sued the company for a quarter of a million each, which was huge, even by today's standards. And they won damages in 1938. But unfortunately, a lot of them only lived only a few months after the trial verdict. But what it did do was that it kind of set this legal precedent where companies can be held legally responsible for the health and safety of their employees and that they have the right to work in a safe environment. And it's all down to this group of women who essentially died without ever seeing the fruits of their labor. And I find that really inspirational, especially you hear of companies doing all these kind of shady deeds, especially during coronavirus when people are getting laid off by the dozen And I think what their story shows is that you can really band together and you can change the legal system. And a lot of these women, you can just imagine being in their position, being told, oh, you've only got a few months to live. Would you rather spend it with your family and friends or get caught in this incredibly lengthy, drawn out legal case where you might never live to see the verdict? And they chose the they chose the latter. And I think that's really, really brave, because if I was in that position, I don't know what I would have chosen. It's really brave. And it's an amazing story. And Another great illustration as well. We've just read Midnight in Chernobyl, a rebel book club about what happened after after Chernobyl in great detail. And it's, it's, it's obviously some similar parallels because it, you see, you hear these stories of like people are like, oh no, it's fine, it's fine, it's only a little bit. And of course, their their health unravels over time and still is. So we've got we've got time for one more, Ben. I think so. Let's squeeze in one more. Yeah. Okay. okay. I want to hear about the Mad Queen of Madagascar, but that's just a personal request because <laughs> I just was like blown away by her and her story. But what what else? Who else have you got? Sing. Oh, okay. Hmm. I would love to talk about Nur Anayat Khan, if that's right. So basically, she is the kind of woman where I found out about her story and I was like, oh my God, this needs to be a movie. She had an amazing life. She was a Muslim, a pacifist, a daughter of a Sufi preacher. She was descended from an 18th century sultan in India. And she died in the resistance against the Nazis in Nazi-occupied France and Germany. And I just think that her story is really exemplary and illustrative of how, you know, we have this idea of what World War II is, a lot, is about. And it's about brave soldiers fighting on the beaches. And these soldiers and people in the war effort are almost always men and they're almost always white. And, you know, Noah's story shows that there was a huge variety in the kind of people who signed up to fight in the war. And she really kind of reshaped my understanding of what World War II was like. So 
she was very, very committed to Indian independence. And when she interviewed for the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, which is where women could fight, she was basically like, okay, guys, you know, I'm signing up to help the war now. But after this is all over, don't be surprised if you see me on the other side fighting for Indian independence. I'm just warning you guys now. So that was the kind of woman she was. She was really forthright, really headstrong. She was really, really committed to freedom and justice and peace. And basically, when she volunteered for the WAF, she entered enemy-occupied territory at a time when the French resistance was starting to fall apart. So it was very, very dangerous for her. And she was constantly having to kind of manage being found out and sending messages back to the Brits about what the Germans were doing in occupied Europe. And unfortunately, she was given the chance to come back. And she said, I don't want to come back. I don't want to abandon my post. I think it's too important. And then her luck kind of ran out. Someone sold her out to the Gestapo for 100,000 francs. She tried to escape custody twice. Unfortunately, an RAF bombing mission curtailed her second escape attempt. It's kind of sad irony. And at the prison, she was basically repeatedly tortured and beaten up. She still refused to give up any information to her captors. And then eventually she was taken to a concentration camp where she was executed. And I just think that that's, that story of resistance and bravery and refusing to give in is just so inspirational, especially considering she didn't need to fight for the resistance. She didn't need to sign up for the war, especially at a time when most women weren't signing up for the war. I just think that her story is incredible. And I think that when you see how World War II especially has been kind of painted over through rose-tinted lens and it's become this real kind of talking point where it's like, oh, wouldn't it be better if we went back to the empire and the good old days of where Britain saved the rest of Europe and we didn't have people coming in from other parts of the world. I think people like her are a really good rebuttal to stereotypes and assumed notions like that because here you have this Muslim woman who is fighting for Britain who gave her life in service of this country and you know the more we get to tell stories like that the more I think that we can kind of take apart these ideas of what Britishness is and what it means to be British. Some really powerful stories yeah thank you so much Um, and that's just scratching the surface as well right this is just like we've heard maybe four or a handful out of 48 so do make sure you check out the full book and just to kind of segue into modern day now and taking everything we've just spoken about, how do you think 2020 is changing the way people now see female leadership? And do you feel like we're reaching a bit of a tipping point or not? Oh, I think 100%. There was that really interesting article that went around. I can't quite remember where it was published, but talking about female leaders during the coronavirus crisis and contrasting mm. the leadership of someone like Angela Merkel and Jacinda Aden to leaders like Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. And, you know, on some level, I think that generalizations like that can be helpful. And they can also be kind of slightly pat and, you know, like, oh, let a woman do it. She's much better. She'll be in charge. Um, But I do think it is interesting to see the way that women in crisis have responded to coronavirus, especially someone like Jacinda Aden, and how much better those countries have emerged out of, well, what is now an ongoing crisis. So I think that there are a lot of people looking at female politicians and thinking, what about this leadership style makes them better at handling a crisis? And I think that, you know, it's an early experiment because we 
have had female democratically elected female leaders for a while now. But I think that combined with the current conversation we're having about women's rights and social justice and equality, I think that's all combining into a really potent mix where people are kind of looking around and thinking, well, you know, what does leadership look like in 2020? When it really, really hits the fan, who do you want to have in charge? Super interesting. And we actually at Rebel Book Club read Invisible Women last month, kind of exploring a theme of gender bias. And it was it was really shocking. And I guess our whole ethos and why we started Rebel Book Club was to, to read these kind of interesting books and then try and turn them into some kind of tangible action. So we actually read something and then go and do something rather than just ruminating on sort of the subject. But what role do you think everyone listening and ourselves here can play to keep pushing? We've got all of this inspiration and we know there's amazing female leaders out there. What can we do to keep supporting? So I think that you can start by just being critical of what you see and what you hear around you. So if you, for instance, go into a museum or a gallery or read a book and you're suddenly like, oh, where's the women? Where are the black women? Where are the women of color? Where are the working class women? And, you know, staying constantly alert to the kind of voices that you hear and asking yourself, is there a reason this person comes off as more authoritative and decisive and confident? Is there a reason this person looks as if they've been groomed for power, basically, and has had all the entitlements and an easy ride to a top? Why is that? And would a woman, especially women of colour, would a woman of colour had the same easy ride? You know, I think this all the time when I look at political leaders who are flailing, to put it nicely, would they have had such an easy ride to a top if they were a woman? Would they have quite an easy ride if they want a man. And, you know, I think in most cases, the answer is no. So I think that if you are able to look critically at the people in power, at the kind of narratives that, you know, you encounter, whether that's in an institution like a museum or a gallery, and ask yourself these kind of questions, you know, you can do a lot. And, you know, if you start thinking, if you walk into a gallery show and you think, oh, this is an art show about postmodernism, and yet there's only one woman, why is that? write in, you know, write to the person who's the curator, write into the head of the institution, write to your local MP, tell people that that simply isn't good enough. One of the things that I've really taken away from lockdown is that people are hungry to be able to affect change and they're hungry to feel as if they can do something, especially because the world feels like it's going to hell in a handbasket, especially in 2020. And I think you can harness that and really easy, effective ways. The thing I always tell people is that if there's something that makes you angry, write to your MP. Write to your MP about Black Lives Matter. Write to your MP about political unrest. Write to your MP about the gender pay gap. Because as a citizen, as someone who's interested in politics, as people who are affected by the decisions that people make at the very top of government all the time, you know, you have a right to be heard. And I think that's what the leaders is kind of all about because there are rulers and empresses and queens and there and pharaohs, but there are also what you might call quote unquote the little people, the people who were born poor, who were born working class, who were born marginalized by society, and they were still able to achieve amazing, amazing things. And you know, I'm not saying that any of us could achieve amazing, amazing things, but I'm saying that you could be part of a movement that can. You can be part of a group of people who can. You can put your mind to achieving these things if you are passionate about these issues. And I think that's really important to make people feel as if they they are empowered and they are capable of making that change because anybody can. 
100%. And you're being very modest. You're already doing amazing things. And we'd love to <laughs> Thank know you what, very much. what's next thing. What are you kind of working on at the moment? And what's the next project? Are there more books in the pipeline or what are you up to? So, oh, I'm working on... I'm working on a couple of essays that will come out in anthologies to come out in 2021, 2022. That's been really interesting, working on more kind of literary essays. I'm also working on, you know, the Women's Prize podcast, which if you're interested in books, you should definitely have a listen to. And just continuing on with presenting and hosting more video. So if you look out for my work on vice.com, it'll be there. I'm working on several video series right now. So just look out you can follow me on socials at missing i'll probably shout about stuff there too so yeah <laughs> i guess that's kind of the plug i'm very bad at doing the plug if you can't tell united zingdoms a great is a great title to uh, for a series um i just wanted to pick up on a question around education so around this conversation led by black lives matter we've seen the black curriculum and there's a social enterprise called the black curriculum being pushed forward and you know people like me in middle england emailing head masters of schools saying hey have you considered this and and doing those very simple things that, that are now leading to change do you think in terms of education and curriculums there's more opportunity for not necessarily in the format that forgotten women the leaders is written in but for these stories to transfer into more formal education because it seems to me not just that the gender gap in role models in education and history is there but also potentially the type of women that maybe there's lots of queens and, and maybe not enough from different parts of society is there do you see a movement in that direction is there anyone doing that in education or what's going on in that space oh i think so definitely so you raise the black curriculum which i think is a great initiative and i kind of think that what they're trying to do i think that in general diversifying the curriculum in all directions making it more racially diverse more diverse in terms of gender these things all go hand in hand and I think that at the end of the day, what they do is they make school more interesting. And I think that there's this kind of idea where there's a set curriculum. You know, you learn about Henry VIII and, you know, the wives and everything, et cetera, et cetera. You learn about World War II, you learn about blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, I think that a lot of people view op opening up the curriculum as a kind of threat on this version of history that we've all been taught. You know, like, oh, but if we put more women in, it won't respect the troops or something, you know? But that's not true. If anything, it really corrects the kind of very narrow focus of history that we've been brought up reading. And it makes it more interesting and accessible to everyone else, because not everyone is someone who like loves Spitfires and the troops and everything. Not everyone feels as if they can connect with the history that we've been taught in schools. And the more diverse you make history, the more likely it is that people can connect with the history because they can see their own history reflected in what they've been taught. and. I just think that the more people can see themselves in the history of the world, the more likely it is that they feel as if they have a part to play in it, that they feel that they have the power to change it. And that's always been really important to me, that people feel like their stories are reflected and that they're able to see themselves in these stories of power and change and political activism. Because if not, then history is something that's done to you, something that just affects you and directs your life when you have no power in it. But everyone's got power, you know. I think that we just need to get better at reflecting that in the historical record. Everyone's got power. So if you're sitting comfortably in the Queen's Hotel in Cheltenham or you're planning a trip there soon, 
Look out for the story-inspired cocktail that's served at the hotel, and when you order one, you can receive a complimentary copy of the beautiful book Forgotten Women, The Leaders by Zing. Zing, thank you so much for joining us today, and for most importantly, for putting together this brilliant series and all the work that you do. It's been a bit, it's been brilliant listening to your stories and getting to know you a bit better. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Thanks, Zing.